Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 15 of Dr. Music. I'm Matthew Morulo. Thank you so much for joining me again. Today we're going to be looking at a very famous composition by the 19th century Hungarian composer Franz Liszt. And I've spoken about Liszt before in both Season 1 and Season 2, and he's written a lot of famous music. Probably his most famous piece is his Hungarian Rhapsody No. 2, which was featured in a Tom and Jerry cartoon. And that cartoon, called the Cat Concerto, actually won an Academy Award back in 1947. So I guess the list helped him out with that. I think Franz would have been delighted to see a cartoon cat playing his concerto. And I use the term concerto because that piece is like a piano concerto in that there's a soloist, a pianist, playing against orchestral accompaniment. And quite a solo it is. When you hear a solo by Franz Liszt, you know you're going to be in for a treat. Liszt was the ultimate virtuoso of the 19th century. He, along with Frédéric Chopin, are the two greatest pianists of the 19th century, and also two of the greatest composers. Franz Liszt actually developed a very new, very difficult piano technique. As a teenager, he was at the piano hours upon hours, sometimes all day, to perfect this technique. And he wrote a set of etudes called the Transcendental Etudes because they are just that. They're transcendental in their piano technique. There are things being done in those pieces that have never been done before, and for a while, they were unplayable. Liszt was the only person who could play them. And many people today can't play these etudes. These pieces are called etudes because etudes are kind of an instructional type of piece. It's meant to teach you some kind of a technique. For example, there's an etude by Chopin that features running thirds in the right hand. And I cannot play that. I've tried, believe me. You have to have some pretty fancy finger work to play parallel thirds at that speed. But that's a whole idea behind an etude. It focuses on a certain technique of the piano so that you could practice and perfect it. So if you ever attempt to play any piece by list, whether it's a piece for solo piano or a piano concerto, make sure you have a bottle of water and a few towels right next to you because you are going to sweat. It's an acrobatic, very physical activity. Now, Liszt did write piano concertos, but he also wrote pieces that are not called piano concertos, but they're basically piano concertos in, in that, again, there's a solo pianist with orchestral accompaniment. And one of my favorites is called Totentanz, Death Dance. Now, the name of that actually refers back to the Middle Ages for a couple of reasons. First, the melody that it's based on dates from the 13th century. We don't know exactly when it was written, we don't know exactly who wrote it, but it's a monophonic chant. Monophonic because it's just one melody, and it's meant to celebrate some part of the Catholic liturgy. It's called the Dies Irae, Day of Wrath. And the Dies Irae is a sequence. Now, be careful, because when I say sequence, if you've heard any of my prior episodes, you're probably thinking, oh, I know what a sequence is. It's a melody that's repeated but transposed either higher or lower. This is a different type of a sequence. In the Catholic service, this is a melody that was sung during the Eucharist before the gospel was recited. So that's the definition of a sequence dating back to the Middle Ages. I know that's a little bit confusing, but musical terms, just like any discipline, will change their meaning or they might have multiple meanings. So this particular chant, the Dies Irae, or Day of Wrath, 
refers to many religions, actually, because it refers to the Last Judgment. And the Last Judgment can be found in many religions. For the Christian religion, it refers to the Second Coming of Christ. But the theme of the Day of Judgment or Doomsday can be found in many religions, like Judaism or Islam. Now, there are many stanzas to the DSERA. I'll just read you the first one. It goes, Day of Wrath, O Day of Mourning. See fulfilled the prophet's warning, heaven and earth in ashes burning. That's not exactly the kind of poetry you're going to hear at a picnic, but there it is. Now, the other thing I want to say about that is the title, Death Dance. During the Middle Ages, in the 14th century, there was a plague, the Black Death. And this plague probably killed off as much as a third of the European population. It might have even been more. And what happened was artists started to produce art that portrayed the Grim Reaper, or death, dancing. And the idea was, haha, got you, and even if you're alive right now, you're going to be next. And it doesn't matter if you're young, old, rich, poor, you could be the Pope, it doesn't really matter, because this plague is going to get you. And it was actually called Dance Macabre. That's French for Dance of Death. And it was an artistic genre in the late Middle Ages. And this universal depiction of death through art came about, again, because of very bad things happening, like the Black Death, but also there was famine, and don't forget the Hundred Years' War. When you have a war that lasts a hundred years, it's going to make you think about death. Now, there are many composers who have liked to use the Dies Irae monophonic chant in their compositions. For instance, Hector Berlioz, Sergei Rachmaninoff, and the French composer Camille Saint-Saëns actually wrote a piece called Dance Macabre, which again is referring to the early 15th century artistic current of the Dance of Death, which of course was in response to all the bad things happening in the 14th century. Incidentally, in that piece, Dance Macabre, Saint-Saëns uses a technique for the violin called scordatura. That's when the violin strings are tuned differently to get a particular effect. Violin strings are usually tuned by perfect fifths, which sound nice, but for the Dance of Death, Sansons wanted a tritone or an augmented fourth, which sounds very harsh and very evil. So let me play you the Dies Irae on the piano to refresh your memory of what that sounds like. So what Liszt does and his totentance is base an entire piece on that melody, on that monophonic chant. The form of the piece is first an introductory passage followed by six variations. But some of these variations are really sizable. You could even say they are variations within variations. For instance, the sixth variation is very long. It almost sounds like a piece unto itself. So what I'd like to do is play you different parts of this set of variations. And just like my prior episodes, I'm hoping to whet your appetite and inspire you to listen to the entire piece from beginning to end. It's really quite a piece. And as we listen to it, we're going to talk about what it is about other composers and lists past that inspired him to write in certain manners or in certain styles. Styles that harken back to other composers like Bach. So let's first listen to the very beginning of Totentanz, 
This is Jean-Yves Thibaudet playing the piano and Charles Dutois conducting the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. And at the very beginning, I'd like you to notice the very percussive nature of the piano. He treats the piano like a drum. And this was very innovative for a piece that was written in around 1849, and then he revised it a few years later. that's not an attention grabber, I don't know what is. So you heard those really loud percussive piano chords at the very beginning. This treatment of the piano as a percussive instrument, and by the way, the piano is partly a percussion instrument because you hit the keys, so that's why it's percussive. But this technique inspired 20th century composers like Hungarian composer Bela Bartok. When he wrote a lot of his piano music, he did just that. He treated the piano as a percussion instrument so again, just like in this piece, you had those very low percussive bass chords. Now let's listen to a little bit of the first variation. And when you hear this variation, at first you might say to yourself, how can that be a variation of the Dies Irae theme? Ba, 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 ba. You heard it very clearly in the introduction with the brass. Well, listen to the bass, the lowest voice. You will hear it in the bass for both the orchestra and when the piano comes in. That kind of technique is reminiscent of a ground bass, or a passacaglia, which I spoke about in season one. A ground bass is a type of composition where the bass is a repeated melody, and that repeated melody is the foundation over which you can compose pretty much whatever you want. In this case, the ground bass is the dies irae melody. Now let's listen to some of the second variation.
what he was doing in that variation? It was similar to the first variation in that the melody, the dis ire melody, was in the bass, but the right hand was doing these really fast notes going up and down. And later on, these turn into glissandos. Glissandos on the piano are when you take a pair of fingers and you just glide them really quickly across the white keys. You could either go up or down. So these are special effects that Liszt is using. You could almost call it musical fireworks. In the context of the somber Day of Judgment Dies Irae melody in the bass, these bright glissandos actually have an eerie chilling effect. Now let's listen to some of the third variation. Now, in that case, the piano was playing the Dies Irae melody with orchestral accompaniment. And the orchestra was reacting with these rising whoops, like da-da-da-up, da-da-da-up, like that. And also, the rhythm of the Dies Irae melody in the piano was a dotted rhythm, like a cutting rhythm, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So although the general contour, or the shape of the Dies Irae melody is being maintained, Liszt certainly plays around with the rhythm. Now let's listen to the beginning of Variation 4. So what is Liszt doing in this case? This is very different from what we've heard before. In this variation, we are back to the Baroque era, the time of Johann Sebastian Bach, because this is imitative counterpoint. And I've spoken about imitative counterpoint. Imitative because the various voices are imitating each other, and counterpoint means two or more simultaneous, rhythmically independent melodies. So this is basically Baroque music except it's based on the Dies Irae melody, and not just the beginning of the melody, it could be based on different phrases, because remember, the Dies Irae melody does have different phrases. Like in previous variations, Liszt is playing around with the rhythmic aspect of the melody. Now listen to what happens later on in this variation. He changes the tonality. It's no longer dark, but lyrical and whimsical. And he utilizes piano figurations that are very common in the Romantic style, and in particular, Liszt's piano style.
Now, that is not the kind of variation you expect out of a death dance, but Liszt loves to explore every musical possibility inherent in a melody. At the beginning of this variation, I mentioned Baroque music. Speaking of that, listen to what he does in Variation 5. He maintains the Baroque style, but the music is imbued with Liszt's sparkling virtuosity and showmanship. What you're going to hear essentially is a Baroque fugue, and a fugue I've spoken about in prior episodes. It's a composition that has imitative counterpoint, like we were speaking about before, but then episodes, so after the voices all come in with a particular melody imitating each other, there are episodes that develop that melody or more than one melody. And this is a fugato, F-U-G-A-T-O, which means it's not a strict fugue. It doesn't follow all the conventions of a fugue, but it definitely has aspects of a fugue. gotta admit, that's so much fun. And it also displays Liszt's admiration and command of many different styles of music. Now the sixth and final variation is rather large, but let's just get a little taste of it. Thank you. 
Remember when I said earlier that sometimes there are variations within variations? Well, this is a perfect example. At the very beginning of this sixth and final variation, it had a martial quality. You could almost picture a royalty entering the chamber. But then Liszt commences with a bunch of variations on that royalish theme. And each of the manifestations are quite different. Now Liszt himself notated when each of the six variations began. So you can't argue with the man. He said there are six variations. But this final variation is so expansive that it consists of a set of variations unto itself. It's like a bunch of nested Russian dolls. You open up one, and there's another one. You open up the next one, and there's another one. Now, I just have to play you the ending because this is the kind of bring-the-house-down conclusion that Liszt loves to write. As always, I encourage you to listen to the entire piece from beginning to end. One thing that this piece proves, a death dance can really enliven your life. You're definitely going to want to join me for the next episode, because in that episode, it'll be the first time that I interview a professional musician on this podcast. Hope to see you then, because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better. <laughs>